This is OC Talk Radio, the place you go for stimulating conversations. OCTalkRadio.net. You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi. Welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. This business talk show airs live on Tuesdays at 4 p.m., heard exclusively on Internet radio station octalkradio.net. If you're listening to this show in the future as a podcast, we encourage you to consider listening to the program live during our broadcast time. The show is brought to you by Succession Strategies, Commerce National Bank, and Smart Business Magazine. The goal for this show is to help you, our listening audience, make better decisions. If you would like to join in on the conversation today because you are listening to us live, then the way to do that is to find the community chat room section of octalkradio.net's website. This will connect you to our nerve center, to our producer. Today our producer is Paul Roberts. He'll bring your thoughts and ideas to my attention and possibly I can work them into one of two of my guest conversations that I'm planning to have today. If you're tuning in to listen to Seema Hajati, Vice President with California Bank and Trust, Seema will be with us at the bottom of the hour. So stay tuned because we're going to have a fascinating conversation with Scott Elderton. Scott's with Stubbs, Elderton, and Markels. I've invited Scott to be on the show to discuss the methods available to entrepreneurs for funding your business. Now, I'll also be talking with Scott today about the steps to be taken to prepare your company for the process of securing funding. Scott, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show. Thank you, Rick. It's good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about your professional background that sort of predates your, your current firm. Tell us a little bit about your professional history. Sure. Well, I've been practicing law for about 29 years, and I graduated from Loyola Law School here in Los Angeles, and I started my career um, wanting to be a traditional corporate securities lawyer, uh, sort of a Wall Street-type lawyer, but on the West Coast. And I spent a fair amount of time at a couple of different large law firms doing that and working on large public offerings and municipal debt offerings, uh, debt transactions, mergers and acquisitions, things like that. And um, on about the mid-'90s, I was practicing law with a group of, of folks who I admired and liked very much, and we sort of got bit by the technology bug and started to spend a lot of our time working on venture capital, private finance, as well as continuing our public securities practice. And um, right about that time, we sort of, sort of started focusing on what we called the emerging growth and technology market. And that it actually led us to what became Stubbs, Alderton, and Markley's, which is a practice group within, we were within a big firm, you know, focusing on that segment of the market and, and becoming expert in all things related to technology that were associated with the corporate securities practice, intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions, private finance, et cetera. Why did you, um, or how did you go from working inside of a larger firm to having your own firm? So what, what happened was, you know, big firms were sort of on a track of getting bigger and bigger and conglomerating and getting very large. And, and our market, frankly, is... Um, a smaller market, what we call the emerging growth and technology market, which we define as really anything from a virtual garage startup company 
to a middle market company. And the, those companies can have very complex legal needs and demand complicated legal services, but they aren't necessarily good fits for a big firm for a variety of reasons. You know, big firms are great, but big firms have clients like Apple and Lucent Technologies and, you know, co companies that aren't necessarily fee sensitive, uh, you know, have a larger revenue base to support paying for legal services, uh, you know, in, in that sort of environment. And we, our practice was around a client base that has a little bit more risk associated with it, a client base that's entrepreneurial, a client base that you need to sort of understand and have some flexibility towards because you may be dealing with a company that has a very good idea, but they don't have necessarily the, the uh, revenue base or the ability to pay you fees initially, and you need to work with those guys until they can get to the point where they become a client. And a, per a perfect example of that is a client of ours called Skype Technologies, which has become a household name. We represented that, that company from the time it was two guys who thought it up and were founding the company, and we worked with them for the better part of a year without ever really incurring much in the way of legal fees until they then you know, became on a growth curve that got them very successful. So we, we found that our practice didn't fit well within a big firm because the big firms didn't appreciate those kinds of clients or want to take that kind of risk or make that kind of investment in the client. So we left the big firm environment, that, that group I was talking about earlier, that group of lawyers, we left the big firm environment uh, back in 2002. There were five of us at the time. We formed Stubbs, Alderton, and Markleys, and we've uh, had a, a really good record of success, fortunately, and we've built the firm up to about 17 lawyers today. I was going to ask you, in your opinion, how is your practice, your firm, different than others, but I think you've done a pretty good job of helping us to understand why you not only are different, but how you had to create your own firm to be able to realize that differentiation. But is there anything else, Scott, about your firm today that uh, sets you apart from others who might say they do what you do, or in fact do it, but you feel you do it differently and maybe better than for your clients? Well, look, there's, lot, there's lots of very good and talented lawyers out there. I think what sets us apart is a keen understanding of our marketplace and a business model that's different from a lot of law firms that focuses on the emergence of companies and, and, our, and our ability to basically take some risk with those clients, make investments in those clients in terms of time and attention, um, and be able to nurture them and provide them more than just legal services, but, but really a trusted business advisor who can guide them along an evolutionary path. Um, and we've been able to come up with a business model that works for us where we can um, be cost-effective for them at the early stages of that evolutionary path and sort of make it up at the back end when they get bigger, Mm -hmm. um, and that works for that works all the way around. Excellent. Okay, let's let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about funding a business. Uh, I, I guess I'm going to ask you to distinguish between the various types of funding that would be available. Maybe help us to understand the uh, basic avenues a business may take to get funding, and if you can take us through that and maybe tie it to stages of the company's growth and evolution, that would be helpful. Sure. First of all, I think what you have to understand is um, a, a saying my partner just does like to say is there are different generals for different wars, and not all companies are going to get funded the same way, and not all companies are going to be able to attract the same kind of funding. So if you're starting a small business and that small business is going to basically be that and, and remain that, you know, you're going to have certain avenues of funding available to you. And if you're starting a, you know, if you're starting a technology business that may be small only because it's young, but you intend it to scale and grow and become a gigantic business like a Skype, 
that, that kind of a company is going to have different options available to it. But basically, companies are going to fund themselves through um, really one of three or, or four different avenues. Um, one is going, you know, t- typically true startup companies at their early stages do what's called friends and family funding, and I'm, I'm sure that people are on your show are familiar with that term, or maybe they've heard it as the, the friends, family, and fools funding. And that's, that's, you know, people that you know, people that are friends or family, you know, your, your relatives, your, your close colleagues, people who are going to invest in your business and give you money to start a business because they believe in you. And that's, the, that's exactly why they're giving the business, the, giving you the money to start the business, because they believe in you and they think you're going to make something out of it. And, and really all kinds of businesses can address that kind of funding, whether you're starting, you know, a mom-pa uh, uh, sundry store, you know, your dad and your mom might be the best investor for you because they believe in you, um, or whether you're starting a technology company. You know, lots of people start off by raising a small amount of money from a, a friends and family crowd. Um, th- then there's a- a- always debt financing. Debt financing, you're typically going to only be able to access if the nature of your business is going to support debt. In other words, you're going to you're going to either create collateral or your business has collateral in the form of something like receivables uh, or equipment that you have uh, or something of that nature that you can pledge to a bank against uh, a loan they would make to you and you fund your business through a debt financing. And, and most businesses that have that kind of collateral can access that kind of funding. Um, that then businesses start to segregate themselves as they go to what we typically think of as venture capital funding or, or angel capital funding. Um, angel funding is typically like venture funding, but it, it means it's not necessarily a professional or an institutional investor. It might be one or more high net worth individuals who are making a financial investment that they expect to do well on, but they don't necessarily look at all the same criteria that a venture capitalist will look at. Um, and, and that's a, an investment where they will put in a, a, an amount of money, a minority interest in the business, but one with a set of rights around it that will protect their investment. And then as the business grows, they'll hope to exit through a sale or some other liquidity event in that business. And of course, venture capital funding, which is sort of the, the, the big one, is professional venture investors that will come in and make, again, a minority investment in your business to help you grow and scale your business, um, hoping that at some point in the relatively near future, that might be three, five, seven years, you're going to get to an exit or a liquidity event where you either sell that business or take it public, and they make a return on their capital. Largest differentiation of venture capital type businesses are you really have to be a, um, a, a big business. Venture capitalists aren't looking for um, a bank-type return on their money or, or even what, what a normal person might think is a reasonable return on their money. They are looking for... 15, 18 times return on their money or big home runs. So if you're not a business that, and this is regardless, Rick, of whether you're a brand new business or you know a business that's a little bit older, if you're not a business that can demonstrate to them that you are have the ability to solve a big problem and scale to a large size, and when I say a large size, I mean like a half a billion dollars or more in revenue, if you're not that kind of a business, you're probably not a good candidate for venture capital. So are you topping out then with angel investors who may have a little different expectation for a return on investment? Exactly. An, an angel investor may be happy with a return, you know, 
that that is you know they, they're going to invest a smaller amount of money. A typical angel investment is in the range of uh, anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars at the low end to maybe a half a million dollars at the high end. And so, a, a company that that might start very small and grow and exit as a fifteen, twenty, thirty million dollar sale could be a reasonably good return for an angel investor. Because that's not an insignificant concern. I mean, I, I appreciate the opportunity to create firms with huge revenue, half a billion and greater. But there are a lot of uh, opportunity to create wealth around businesses that are 10, 15, 30, 50 million dollars in, in market address and opportunity as well, right, Scott? Well, there, ab- there absolutely are. And I think the, the message for the listening audience is, again, you know, make sure that you are addressing the right audience because. There's certainly nothing to be ashamed of if you think you're going to start a business that you expect is going to grow and be worth 20 or 30 million dollars someday. That's a fabulous achievement, but right. you just need to understand that you're not going to go out to a Sequoia Capital or a Benchmark Capital and raise venture capital from them because that's not a business that's going to be interesting to them. All right, all right. Well, that's that's a great beginning to the conversation, and thanks for sharing that much so far, Scott. We have some other questions that I want to get to with you uh, after our first break. We are going to take our sponsorship break, uh, spend a couple minutes, not even, a little bit of time with our sponsors. And then when we come back, Scott, I'm going to ask you if you can talk about the characteristics that a business needs to possess in order to be fundable, regardless of at what stage or how big, but what are the basic requirements to be fundable. So hold on, ladies and gentlemen. Scott Elderton is going to go into that and a couple other questions that we have scheduled for him today here on Critical Mass Radio Show after these words from our sponsors. Can we talk about your family business? You know, that thing you put your whole life's blood, sweat, and tears into? Well, what happens when you retire? or try and pass that business on to your children. At Succession Strategies, we can help you find the answers. We'll guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation, safely and securely, ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive for generations to come. So ask yourself just one question. Can I really afford to wait? Take the first step. Take our complimentary self-assessment at SuccessionStrategies.com or call us at 714-560-9022 to set up a free consultation at your convenience. That's Succession-Strategies.com. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitment in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Math for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sounding board to test ideas and concepts, review plan and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. 
Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. And if you're interested, we do several shows in this series of Critical Mass Radio Shows. On Tuesday at 4 o'clock, you're listening to us live or maybe as a podcast. This is our show where we interview Southern California business leaders and people who have knowledge that is of value to entrepreneurs and business owners here in Southern California. On Wednesdays at 4 o'clock, we uh, do a show focused on Southern California nonprofits. I interview nonprofit uh, executive directors, members of their board, talking about the various different worthy causes that they are engaged in supporting here in our communities throughout Southern California. And then at Thursday, on Thursday at 3 p.m., we do a show focused on a national perspective where I'm interviewing uh, entrepreneurs and business owners from across the country, talking with them about the issues and opportunities that they're facing in their various markets. Those three shows are all heard live here on octalkradio.net. All right, let's get back to our guest, Scott Elderton. We were going to have you share with the audience a bit about what does it mean to be fundable. Sure. Um, so let me just go through a few criteria that, that sort of uh, define a fundable business. And when I talk about this, Rick, what I'm really talking about is a, is a fundable business that's fundable by you know, professional investment. Angel investors uh, or venture capital investors are going to be interested in looking at at funding a business. We're not, I mean, there's lots of entrepreneurial businesses that are important um, that, that may just be, you know, lifestyle-type businesses like franchises and food services and things of that nature. And I'm not really talking about that at this point. I'm talking about sort of venture-fundable or, or angel-fundable businesses. So, so here's sort of the criteria that you need to, need to address and understand. Number one is, is there a real problem you're addressing? A company can't grow to be big if it's not looking to solve a big problem. So that's number one is, you know, what is it you're addressing and are you trying to solve a real problem that's causing real pain to people in a marketplace? Um, secondly, the question is, do you have a unique product or, product or services that, I'm sorry, do you have a unique product or service that addresses that market? So in other words, are you coming up with a solution that really is a solution that solves a real problem? Or is this just sort of another Me Too product um, that, that, that may or may not uh, be of any consequence? Um, then, so is there a real problem? Do you have something unique that's solving that problem? And then is there a large potential market for that solution? And, and again, we talked a little bit about this earlier in terms of being venture fundable, but the problem has to be really big if you're going to attract a large amount of capital to go out and solve the problem. And can that solution be attractively monetized? So in other words, can you put a business model around the solution to the problem? Um, you know, back in the, in the sort of uh, heyday of the late 90s, we saw a lot of businesses when the Internet was sort of wild and crazy. We saw a lot of businesses that looked like they were growing really big, but, but no one was figuring out how to actually make money at any of them. Um, and you had to sort of see the, the, the Internet as an industry mature a bit until you started seeing business models that could be attractively monetized. Obviously, people invest in businesses because they want to make money and they want to see a return on their investment. Um, then, of course, if it's going to be a big business, it needs to be able to grow and scale rapidly. So businesses that you've seen uh, you know, start out as small and get big, big and become sort of household names, businesses like Skype and businesses like eBay, and businesses like even Google. They started out as very small businesses, but they were able, as people caught on, 
their business model was such that it could be scaled rapidly. It could grow very large, very fast, and be managed. Um, and so that's obviously an important factor. Um, then, can, can, as you grow and sustain that business, can you have a sustainable competitive advantage? So is there something about your business? Do you have a unique technology, a patent? Uh, do you have a particular kind of customer that you can access that other people can't, can't access? Do you have, um, did you get there first or so fast that the rest of the pack is so far behind you that you have some sustainable competitive advantage? Um, otherwise, you're just showing the way, and then everybody else jumps into that business, and then your business can't become, can't become very valuable because you can't compete. Um, and, then, and then lastly, I think the, key, the last key element, Rick, is you know, do you have a team? And not all small businesses start out with the right team uh, because the team evolves as the business evolves, but do you at least have the right pieces of the team to execute and have a track record of success? And, and I'll linger on this one for just a moment because I think the lesson to the listeners and to the entrepreneur is you may be a great entrepreneur. You may have come up with a terrific idea for a business. You may be able to move that idea into a product or a service or some kind of sustainable business, but you may not be the right person who's going to be able to grow that business, run that business, scale that business. And if you're not, you know, know what you don't know and attach yourself to a team of other people who have the skills that you don't have that can help get you there. That is a thoughtful uh, discussion listing of the of what it means to be fundable, Scott. And, and as you were explaining that, I, I was thinking, you know, that's a healthy process for any entrepreneur to go through, whether they're preparing to seek outside funding or they just want to build a strong and viable business that is a lifestyle business or a business that grows to, you know, small to mid-market size. I mean, these are having these outside people interested in your company and requiring you to demonstrate sort of the thoughtfulness behind the business uh, isn't bad to do even if you're not seeking outside funding. Absolutely. But I can only imagine some of the discussions you've been able to witness and listen to or maybe even participate in when there's a gross difference of opinion between the entrepreneurs and his team or her team and the funding sources and their view of the market and the business, etc. i got to believe there's a little pride of ownership there that's happened as well, and Absolutely. you've seen that. Final question for today on today's show. Uh, I would, I've got more questions to ask you, but we just don't have time today, so I'll have to bring you back on the show at another point. Uh, we were going to talk about, I'd like you to share maybe, what does a business need to do to be prepared for the process of funding? You know, if, if people are listening today or in the future believe this is the track they want to be on, what should they be doing and what are the steps? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I'll run through it quickly because I know that we're running out of time. But but the you know when you're when you're if you're a successful entrepreneur, you're moving at light speed with your hair on fire, and you're trying to accomplish a lot with a little bit, and and that's what makes a good entrepreneur. And so it, you shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that you might have cut some corners or had to do things hastily to get to where you are. But if you're now preparing for a funding process, it's time to go back and make sure that your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. And you've got to understand that a financier is going to conduct a thorough due diligence of your business. And so the things that they're going to look at are things like your incorporation and your organization. Is your legal entity that's housing that business properly structured? Was it set up correctly? Did it go through the proper steps uh, to be organized? 
Have you appointed a board of directors? Have you issued stock correctly? All of those kinds of things that a good business lawyer can help guide you through. Go back and make sure before you sit in front of the, the invest, potential investors that those things are all documented. That's number one. Number two, if your business is based on any kind of intellectual property at all, if you have patents, trademarks, if you have um, copyrighted uh, software that you've created or written to code, make sure you have proper and adequate documentation of that intellectual property development. So someone wrote that code, someone developed that intellectual property. It may have been a consultant you work with. Make sure that there's proper agreements with those people. Make sure that they properly assigned the rights to the intellectual property to your business. And make sure that those things are all documentable. We call that a chain of title over your intellectual property. Make sure you can show from its inception to where you are today that you have a valid chain of title of ownership of that intellectual property. Um, make sure that your key relationships are properly documented as well. So when employees have come and gone into your business, have they signed appropriate agreements to protect intellectual property and to protect confidential information? If you have gone out and had negotiations with third parties or key strategic partners, make sure you're properly, doc you're properly documenting those kinds of relationships. Um, and, and the employment relationships. You don't need employment agreements with all your employees, but you do need basic documentation that recognizes that the things your employees do for you, you own, and that your employees are going to follow certain protocol, not, not uh, leave and solicit employees and be sort of bad actors. And there are standard agreements that, that any good business lawyer can help you through. And, um, and, and two more things, Rick. One is make sure your key customer relationships are properly documented because investors are going to want to go look at and talk to your customers to see what they think about you. So make sure that those relationships are firm and properly documented. And then lastly, um, and this is a biggie for, for entrepreneurs, understand what financial information affects your business and what financial information you have available to present. And lots of times entrepreneurs aren't necessarily the financial person in the business, so they will have somebody else doing some of that for them. You need to be able to sit in front of the investor and clearly understand and explain your financial conditions. So that means your balance sheet your cash flow, your income statement, the, the projections of where you think your business are going, you as the entrepreneur have to have a mastery of that financial information, even if you're not the principal person who's responsible for it. Because if the investor doesn't have confidence in your ability to control your business, they're not going to want to invest. And, and those are the key things. Again, another thoughtful list. And Scott, I've got to ask you, from your experience, it's kind of a two-part question. The first part is, how many um, entrepreneurs that that you work with have the I's dotted and the T's crossed across this matrix? And second question, uh, if they don't, how likely is it and how capable are they of going back and sort of rebuilding the information that they need? If, like you said, their heads were down, were so hard running the business, they didn't even realize that they should have been doing these things in an earlier stage. Right. So. So the answer is the overwhelming majority of them don't have their I's dotted and T's crossed, and, and there needs to be some corporate cleanup and some fixing going on. And almost all of the issues at this stage of a company's growth can be fixed, particularly if all of the players are still intact. So if all of the people who founded the business are still around, if everybody's still sort of cooperative, you haven't had any significant disputes among founders or things, they can almost always be fixed with 
relatively little trouble. Um, you just need the proper guidance and the proper person helping you do it. If someone would like to um, find out more about you and your firm, how do they get in touch with you? Well, the best place to find out about our firm is at our website, which is at www.stubbsalderton.com, and that's S-T-U-B-B-S-A-L-D-E-R-T-O-N.com. We have a robust and extensive website that explains our firm very well. There's a link to me on that website, and there's a contact information for everyone in the firm. Scott, I really appreciate you giving us your time and just a, a glimpse of what you know and how you're helping uh, your clients in this space. I Serious, we're going to have to have you back on because I think there's a part two to this conversation, some other questions that are here that I'd like to ask you that just didn't have time today. So possibly you can rejoin us later this year or early next year. Rick, have to come back anytime. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. All right. Scott Ellerton, I um, think there is a tremendous amount to learn for entrepreneurs who want to go this route. And if you have that type of idea that scales and has all the other elements that Scott talked about, you're going to need to go down this road. And so prepare early and often is, is what I would say. So it's great to have someone with Scott's expertise and his firm's expertise uh, available to the critical mass community here through the radio show. That was a, a great guest and can't wait to get him back on the program and ask him the rest of the questions that we didn't get to today. But we're going to take a break now. My producer has given me it's time to take a break sign, which means we're going to be back uh, as I said with Seema Hajati and she's Seema's with California Bank and Trust. We've got some other discussion to have with her relative to financing and funding for other businesses if you're looking at your banker and a bank as a, as a funding source for your growth. So stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a short time out and be back with Seema right after these words. My company made the switch to Commerce National Bank about six months ago. Our relationship officer was there every step of the way to make the transition as seamless as possible. We had an early hiccup with a deposit scanner, but they dropped everything and drove right to our offices to help. We couldn't feel better about our decision to switch. Instead of calling an 800 number and navigating through automated menus, now I call my Commerce National Bank relationship officer directly for any questions we have. Just knowing that they're so easily accessible and willing to help really puts me at ease. They offer the same technology as the big banks, but deliver it with superior service and training. They're also rated a full five stars by Bauer Financial. So if your organization is a small or medium-sized business in Orange County, you should make the switch too. Call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863 or visit them online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank, and they'll handle the rest. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes about the same time to create a dropout. And at the end of the day, the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be you. So United Way is asking you to make a pledge. Tutor a child who needs help. Mentor a kid who needs someone on their side. Volunteer to read to children. Because when a child advances, we all advance. Be a reader. Tutor or mentor. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge now at liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. You know, from time to time, we say there are definite benefits to listening to program live, and today is certainly one of them. If you are listening to us live and you have not yet registered for our executive conference on Thursday, September 13th, 
It's just around the corner, and you can do that very simply by finding the Critical Mass website, which is www.criticalmassforbusiness.com. In the community section, you'll find the executive conference on employee fraud, and you can click there, and it'll show you how to sign up. It's only $29.95, and what would you learn? You're going to learn how to identify and protect your business from employee fraud. The information about employee fraud is staggering, ladies and gentlemen. And the panel that we've put together for this event is outstanding. And the kind of information they're going to give you, as well as some of the takeaways that you'll be able to implement immediately when you go back to your office, is well worth the price of admission. And the bonus is you get to network and meet other members of the critical mass community. Please, I would encourage you, if you haven't registered and you're interested in understanding employee fraud, we call this seminar Are you paying people to steal from you? Because unfortunately, all too often, um, they are some of your most trusted and long-term employees who are creating uh, fraud inside your company. But anyway, let's turn our attention now to our second guest. Seema, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. Tell me a little bit about your background, sort of what what were you doing before California Bank & Trust? Sure. Um, I've been with California Bank and Trust for 16 years now, and um, I started uh, in banking about 28 years ago. I graduated from University of San Francisco. I majored in economics, and then I was with two major banks after that, um, B of A and um, California First Bank. And I took a little break from the banking. I went to um, investments. I invested in equity markets, stocks, bonds, I got some experience in that, and then I did some mortgage lending. Um, I have extensive background in um, all kinds of lending. But um, as of 1997, uh, when I started with CBNT, I've been with them um, nonstop, and I, um, I love it here. We have a good bank. They are very uh, much focused on their employees as well as customers. So um, I've been very happy with the bank. You know, the audience that's listening to this program uh, are business owners, um, small and mid-market companies, largely here in Orange County, but not exclusively Southern California, around the world, but mostly, you know, Southern uh, California-based companies. From your perspective, with your time at California Bank & Trust, what makes the bank different as it relates to small and and mid-market business owners and executives? Well, you know, California Bank and Trust is one of California's um, leading banks. Um, we are over $10 billion strong in assets. We've been around for over 50 years. Um, our core values are really um, being committed to our customers. We, are, uh, we have this customer-centric approach in our lending and all banking practices, especially for small to mid-sized businesses. Um, we are really dedicated to building long-term relationships with our customers. Um, we have committed bankers um, who are very um, good in the industry and they have market expertise and they can help our customers. So um, we have a niche in that respect of being focused on um, small business bankers, banking needs and um, deposits, lending, all kinds of banking needs. You know, Seema, um, banks for many small and mid-market companies are has been a traditional source of funding for growth. And, and I'm wondering if you might be able to, because I know you work with quite a few successful uh, small and mid-market entrepreneurial companies here in Orange County, kind of give us a sense for how that relationship between the bank 
and the business owner has changed and how can it be successful? How is it successful for your clients and others to work with a bank as a funding source to grow their business into the future? Um, first, I have to say that due to um, unsafe lending practices in the past and un- uncertainty in the economy and the you know, holding pattern that most uh, business owners are in, uh, mostly due to regulations and restrictions imposed on the banks and by the regulators, um, lending guidelines have been very challenging for both um, banks and the customers. So um, I really feel for customer, for small businesses who um, try to establish or build on their credit uh, in order to grow their business, but they find it tough to qualify for uh, these loans and lines of credits. Um, I can see some positive changes in, in respect to um, written guidelines. We are loosening some guidelines and regulations to help small business ba- um, owners to grow their business by um, um, just uh, mostly focusing on SBA loans. We are um, number three SBA lender in the nation. Uh, we help our customers come up with um, different um, business plans and different things to um, hopefully qualify for these loans online. SBA increased their support for small and mid-market businesses. Is that why they're more of a player now? Or is it just that in the absence of maybe some of the other more traditional funding that uh, that SBA has become more of a go-to area for entrepreneurs to go to for money? Well, SBA has increased their lending activities and supporting us, the banks, um, in getting, you know, helping the business owners to um, meet more of the criteria. And, of course, the conventional loans, um, the banks do have the funds we want to lend. We are all eager to lend. Uh, conventional loans are just a little bit more restrictive as far as qualifications and get approvals. For SBA loans, they're a little bit easier in that respect because the government guarantees 50% of these loans, so our hands are not as tight uh, as uh, they are with conventional loans. Um, but SBA has helped us quite a bit, and they have given us breaks in fees and things to help the customers establish these loans. I'm sure it's been a challenging few years for you, and I know uh, across the banking industry, you're the banking business is predicated on being able to make loans. You know that is where the profit is for the bank. That's where the business model it works best. And this economy has made it very challenging for for banks to be successful, given how difficult it is to make loans in this true. environment. That is very true. Um, actually, um, in the banking world in general, um, unfortunately. Um, the well-qualified borrowers, um, the ones that um, typically don't need credit, can have access to credit, while the ones who need it the most, um, they find it much harder to qualify for a loan. Um, but I can see that a lot of it is being changed. Um, we at California Bank and Trust, we are changing our guidelines a little bit to help the customers by um, offering risk-based models in our financing uh, that would help us loosen some guidelines and allow some bus- small businesses to have access to lines of credit and um, hopefully grow and prosper. Let's hope that because that is the economic engine and it's great to have organizations and banks like California Bank and Trust there to support 
uh, the kind of people that listen to our radio program. Mm-hmm. We're going to take we're going to take a break, Seema. When I come back, I'm going to ask you if you could uh, share with us. Think about a past business experience that you had. Maybe it was at California Bank and Trust. Maybe it wasn't. Doesn't really matter. But where you learned a really valuable lesson. But it might have come from what at the time felt like a difficult experience. So if you can think of one of those and be ready to share it with our audience when we return, I would appreciate it. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back to hear that answer and a couple other questions with Seema. But first, let's spend a minute or so with our sponsor. Smart Business Network is a business-to-business multimedia company providing insight, advice, and strategy for C-level executives of fast growth, middle market, and large companies. As one of the nation's largest publishers of local management journals, Under the Smart Business name, Smart Business Network publishes 19 regional print editions, presents dozens of large and small-scale business conferences and award programs, and produces a vibrant interactive digital media presence. For more information, visit us at www.sbnonline.com. This is the sound of a flat-screen television hurled off a building. Now the new bike your kid wants. These are the things you could have all cast into oblivion. Because when you throw away money on wasted electricity, you throw away everything you could have bought with it. Use Energy Star light bulbs and appliances, and you could save hundreds of dollars a year. Saving energy saves you money. Learn more at energysavers.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show with Rick Franzi. Okay, Seema, you had a couple uh, seconds to think about it. Can you think of a time when you learned a valuable lesson, but it might have come through a difficult or trying experience? Um, this would be actually um, more of a general experience in the past two, three years. Because of the downturn in the economy, because of the many failing businesses, unfortunately, that we have seen to struggle, to lose employees, to um, have to downsize, to have to make many tough choices to survive, or unfortunately in some cases to just um, close doors and start a new business or do something totally different than what they have been accustomed to. Um, this has been very, very painful to see for everyone, I'm sure, and um, in particular as a banker, because you want your customers to grow and to prosper and to do well, and that's how the banks would prosper and grow and do well as well. Um, in all that um, adversity, what we have learned and uh, hopefully the businesses have learned is to um, save, to um, cut expenses, to be more prudent in business practices, to um, you know be wiser in their borrowing and in spending. So it's a lot of um, good experience that has come from tough times that I could name as um, a really painful experience for all of us. Companies that have been successful or have survived and have made the tough decisions and and improved their business, the opportunity as this economy continues to improve is to be able to recover some of that lost revenue while hopefully contributing more to your bottom line because of the more streamlined nature of the business. So I, I would have to think that some of the businesses that over time are going to even look more attractive because the business model and their income statement will be uh, a healthier one as long as their balance sheet as well, having gotten through. And I do think 
barring any outside issues that we are beyond the control and outside the borders here in the U.S., I, I think we're in for a slow but steady recovery. That's what the indications are from the economists that I follow. Absolutely, you're right. But 2% GDP growth doesn't feel very exciting, does it, compared to 3 <laughs> or 4%? But that would make life a whole lot easier. True. Your focus is in Orange County? For yes, your, your yes. banking relationships, tell us a little bit about the kind of services that you provide to your clients. Well, um, as you know, we are located in Dana Point, California. We have over 100 branches. We have a large presence in San Diego. We have branches throughout Northern California, Bay Area, and of course Los Angeles and um, eastern part of LA and throughout the state. Um, our focus and what we have uh, found opportunities in is um, our wealth management services, our mortgage lending, financing, commercial real estate loans. Of course, we are a full-service bank. We have all sorts of deposit um, you know, uh, services and products that you can imagine. We have um, business banking-related um, services like remote deposit where the clients can just bank from their office, depositing their checks through a scanner that's connected directly to our service provider or our server, actually. So the, um, there are so many different things that different banks have, but our wealth management services have served us well. They have um, investment strategies and financial growth opportunities providing for our customers that has been very successful. Um, one other area is our mortgage financing for businesses. We have um, up to $3 million in our portfolio loans um, for residential uh, purchases or refinancing. And, of course, commercial real estate, that's been our focus for a long time. Uh, we specialize in mostly owner-occupied properties and some commercial properties that are for non-owners. Uh, we offer low floor rates and um, long-term amortization. Um, mostly our key um, success is in direct access to decision-makers. It's all locally done, underwriting, decision-making, um, very quick response to our borrower's needs. And I was introduced to you through um, small business owners here and entrepreneurs in Orange County. And so my belief is that for your book of business, if I can say that way, but for for your for the clients that you service, you, you is that true that you focus on entrepreneurs and business owners here in Orange County, Seema? Absolutely, absolutely. That's our um, focus: small to medium-sized businesses. Um, of course, you know we have all sorts of residential and consumer lending that we do. Um, but our focus is mostly entrepreneurs and uh, business owners in Orange County. And we have sponsored many um, events in Orange County. And as you've been a part of uh, uh, a couple of them that I recall, of course, you were nominated for the uh, successful business owners in Orange County or entrepreneurs in Orange County. And we're all very proud of that to be able to sponsor our entrepreneurs and businesses in Orange County. It's a very vibrant business community here in Orange County, isn't it, with it such sure a diversity? Is. It sure is, and we've, we've enjoyed um, being in Orange County and, of course, Los Angeles area, and I'm sure you have to. Um, it's the place to be. You know, It's a lot of growth, a lot of opportunities, a lot of um, you know, the things that we can all take advantage of. It's great to be close to Los Angeles with the resources. Los Angeles has, but to be in Orange County, which has, from my perspective, having lived in both counties, much more of a community 
feel to it than I was able to ever establish in all the years that I lived up in Los Angeles. So I, I do enjoy living in Orange County, and I certainly enjoy doing business in Orange County. I think it's a, it's a great marketplace. I agree. I agree. And, of course, San Diego being very close to us, we have it. We have the best of both worlds, being close to L.A. and San Diego, and it's just um, weather-wise, nope. um, location-wise, it's the best. Yeah, you can't complain. I mean, driving down to San Diego, I mean, it's so beautiful. It's, it's, it's a wonderful place to be. How does someone learn more about you and your bank? How do they find you online? Well, um, my email address, let me um, give you that. It's um, sima.hojadi at calbt.com. That's S-I-M-A dot H-O-J-A-T-I at C-A-L-B-T dot com. Our website is www.calbt.com. CalBankTrust.com, and my phone number, of course, 949-248-4448 is my direct number. And you don't get a voicemail. You don't get, oh, you may get a voicemail if I'm out of the office, but you don't get an, uh, get to transfer from one operator to the next. We normally pick up the phone on the first ring at the branch. I think that's great, and it is amazing how people value that. That, for a long time, was a lost art for companies, and I'm glad to see that you, your bank has not lost that art because the relationship is powerful and being put into a voicemail system and a, and a phone tree can be very frustrating for people. Yes, as we have experienced that ourselves. We don't want to be um, the one bank who's known for transferring the customers to an outside source or... Um, having them to wait 10 times before they get transferred to a live person. We pick up the phone if we're here, and if not after the hours, we take messages and return them within 24 hours. I appreciate you being a friend of the program, and I've enjoyed this conversation. You know, Welcome to the community, the Critical Mass for Business community, and I look forward to having you on the program and seeing you at another event in the upcoming future, Seema. Me too. Thank you very much, Rick. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, business owners and entrepreneurs out there, you had two chances to learn from our guests today who are helping businesses grow and evolve in different ways and maybe complementary as well. But um, there is the opportunity to secure funding for growth. It just requires due diligence and work and relationships as well. So until the next time we have a chance to talk, I'm hoping that this show gave you information to make better and more informed decisions. The show is brought to you by Succession Strategies, Commerce National Bank, and Smart Business Magazine. Our producer today is Paul Roberts. Our marketing communications manager is Kelly Faltus. Our guest coordinator, Kathleen Shepard. And I am your host, Rick Franzi. If you'd like to learn more about our business, Critical Mass for Business, then find us on our website, www.criticalmassforbusiness.com. And until the next show, I hope that all of your decisions move your company in a positive direction. You've been listening to Critical Mass, the radio show, right here on... Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net.